I begin this morning by asking a couple of questions that should be asked among us as Christians. Here they are. What do you aspire to be and to do? That is, that area or areas for which you aim your life. That which you seek to do and to be in life. That which you would attempt to accomplish out of your life when you come to die. What's your aim? What's your aspiration? Of course, it could be on several different levels, but such aspiration, such aiming for something should be there regardless of the number of aims or aspirations, but you ought to be pursuing something, not, of course, to achieve some level of status or to attain some area of popular recognition. Rather, I'm asking something like this. What do you seek in life? What do you seek to be? What do you, what do you want to do? When it comes to fruition, are you so grateful? So grateful to God to have brought it to your life or to others from your life or out of your life? Or perhaps even, of course, most chiefly honoring to God to which He's pleased about the aim of your life. This is, this is what we all ought to be thinking about, right? We ought to be thinking about whatever aim, whatever aspiration, uh, whatever we're seeking to be that which the kingdom of God is best served, and of course, most notably, that your life and my life is a testament to our Savior. This is what we all ought to be searching for, achieving, desiring to aim and pursue. This is, this is what we're all about. This is, as the French say, our raison d'etre, our reason to be. This is this is why we live. This is what motivates us to get out of the bed in the morning. This is, this is why we work hard, even to the point of exhaustion. This is, this is what we aim to do because it's right and righteous and holy and best and honoring. And we're so grateful to God if He gives us such fulfillment in these aspirations. Now look, you could spend a great deal of time attempting to ponder a hundred different aspirations. And it seems to me that often Christians are beset with what I might call lower aspirations. Not higher, and certainly not the highest, or it seems to me, and maybe that's because we're appearing to be in the low ebb of a season in the life of churches in general, because seems as though the church has become so worldly, so fascinated with worldly aspirations, worldly pursuits, that as believers in Christ, we ought to be more, I think, ashamed at times 
than gratified. Because we have to have what you and I would call Christian aspirations. Distinctly Christian aspirations. Both before God and man. In fact, that's the title of our message this morning. Christian aspirations before God and man. And you would know, because this is what I do as a biblical expositor, we go verse by verse through the texts of the New Testament, and we find ourselves, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are finding ourselves in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and interestingly enough, you've found me out. This is why I've introduced the subject of Christian aspirations, because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And, according to the ESV, the English Standard Version translation of our Bibles, and to aspire to live quietly, notice that word aspire, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that, for the purpose that, in order that, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, just two verses today. But boy, are they chargeable to us. Very convicting, very challenging. These are holy aspirations. This is what we're aiming for, this is what we seek to do in our lives, or so we should. And obviously the word and, as it begins verse 11, links these two verses with what the Apostle Paul has just written in verses 9 and 10 before it, and which we covered in our biblical exposition last time. Notice what it says, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers, that is brothers and sisters, throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. I've told you before, and it bears repeating, that we're in a section now in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians where we are being given a rapid-fire number of exhortations to respond to, to behave by. They're they're commands. They're, They're exhortations to be sure, but they're also commands. And among our exhorted needs to be ever abounding in our love for one another, according to verse 9, which we studied closely, of course, last Lord's Day. There is also here, says Paul, the need to have two very important Christian aspirations. Now, mind you, there are more littered in and through the New Testament. There are more, more than just these two, 
but these are the two which will occupy us this morning, and it is because they occupy the very mind and heart of Paul to these Thessalonians as he has already spoken to them in person, and now as he is communicating to them via his letter, and he says there are two very, very important Christian aspirations that you must be exhorted to follow. And he speaks about this, and I know this, and you know this, because of that purpose clause in verse 12. I even emphasized it to you when I read it. Did you see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Here's what it says in the first part of verse 12. So that. So what he's going to tell us in verse 11 is a so that we may do something in verse 12. That's why this is so important for us to start in verse 12 first before we find out exactly how to do something. Because in verse 12, he gives the payoff. And what is the payoff in verse 12? Well, it's two things. That you may walk properly before outsiders. That means unbelievers, non-Christian people, pagan people there in Thessalonica. And, notice the and, and be dependent on no one. Which I actually take to be dependency on no one in the fellowship so that you can be clearly focusing on what you may be doing there in the fellowship and also outside the fellowship as you live before unbelievers. So the first one is something like this. Christian, here it is, here's your first aspiration, portray your worthy walk before unbelievers. Portray your worthy walk before unbelievers. Now, in one sense, it's as simple as that. Isn't that exactly what verse 12 says? So that you may walk, and notice this, properly before outsiders. Which means there is a proper way to portray your work, your life, your ministry, your opportunity for the sake of the gospel toward unbelievers. There's a proper way. And obviously, there's an improper way. And he says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And by the way, the word walk there, peripeteo, that, that verb, that's, that's the idea of a step-by-step process of living your life, your Christian life. And in this context, it is a step-by-step walk of faith so that you may portray such faith in front of unbelievers all around you. That's, that's, that's the first aspiration. And the second I take is toward believers so that you're not dependent upon them for anyone so that you are interdependent in a sense, but as far as walking properly among unbelievers, you're showing them in the household of faith how to be dependent on no one, no need, so that they can see your proper walk and come to faith in Christ when they're watching your life. Now, let me unpack this for you because this is very, very important. As I said, I'm saying these are two aspirations here in verse 12 because Paul uses that purpose clause, so that. So everything he's going to tell us in in verse 11 
comes to a payoff so that you may walk properly toward unbelievers and that you be dependent on no one. You see how in one sense, if you just read and you're reading consecutively in your Bible and you're looking for the number one way to interpret your Bible as you read it, and that is the context. And so this context is telling us that we are to love one another, this brotherly love, verse 9. And God has taught you, you're God taught to, one, to love one another. And that is exactly what you're doing, so much so, I really don't even need to write you, but I do write you to tell you that since you all are already doing this, brothers and sisters, you ought to be doing this, according to verse 10, more and more. But he doesn't stop there. And that's why he says in verse 11, and. In fact, since verse references, we call it in sort of a textual, hermeneutical, theological categories, versification, versification. Somebody hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years took our Bible, and you and I praise God for it, and they put verses and chapters, they put numbers before certain statements. Those aren't inspired. Those aren't inspired by God. But they are incredibly helpful to us because when I say, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.11, you're not fishing around for, well, what, which part of it, which phrase, which word. So we say 1 Corinthians 4.11, but there's a boatload of importance in what he has just said in verses 9 and 10. But if we took all the verses away and all the chapters away, and by the way, there are Bible versions, and the ESV is one of them, and you ought to buy them, they have Bibles now that the ESV folks, Crossway Books, publish that have taken the verses out. They've left, in some cases, the chapters so that you and I aren't totally lost. But as you're reading through, you're reading through these chapters, quote-unquote, as it were, but not verses, and boy, does it help to give you a sense of the holistic nature of what you're reading. Now, it's good for us to take the little bitty pieces, the little bitty parts, but it's so amazing just to read this letter, say 1 Thessalonians and, of course, 2 Thessalonians, in one setting without verses attached to the phrases and the sentences and the words and the clauses It just opens up a panorama of understanding, of of impact in your life. And so please don't misunderstand me when I say that verse 11 is what I'm preaching on today, and I preached on verses 9 and 10 last Lord's Day. Uh, And then we're going to get, by the way, to chapter 4, verse 13, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, and we're going to go not just to the end of chapter 4, but this whole section on the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is from chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11. Now, don't ask me, whoever the guy was who was riding apparently on a horse and was making numbered marks about all these verses, and sometimes he must have hit a bump, and he thought that the end of chapter 4 should now start in chapter 5, verse 1. But that's not the way our Bible is configured. Apparently, he had too many bumps. 
because he, he didn't realize that you have to go from chapter 4, verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 11, and it's one unit of thought. So don't get hung up on, well, the end of chapter 4 uh, is about the second coming and then the beginning of chapter 5 is about something else because they wouldn't have put chapter 5 verse 1 until or unless it was a different subject and so uh, I have to sort of like shut off my brain and say well I'm in now chapter 4 and I've just ended chapter 4 and now I go to chapter 5 verse 1 and it's a completely different subject and it ain't so. So guess what? After today I'm going to launch into a multi-part series with an overarching title, something around or like this, The Second Coming of Jesus Christ. And there are going to be a number of sermons from chapters 4 and 5, 4.13 to 5.11, that's all one unit of thought, and we need to capture it as such. And so if you and I are looking at our Bibles and we're reading chapter 4 and we begin with chapter 4 verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That begins this exhortative section, and so therefore it should be chapter 4, verse 1. It should start there. He's right about that, whoever it was, whoever the committee came along and put chapter 4, verse 1 there, they're right on the mark with that. Not with chapter 5, verse 1, but chapter 4, verse 1. And these series of exhortations take us along. And the first one is, you must be sexually pure, verses 3 to 8. That's one unit of thought. And verses 9 to 12, one unit of thought. And what is that unit of thought? Brotherly love, verses 9 and 10, excel still more, just as he said in chapter 4, verse 1, excel still more in your sexual purity. And now he says, and here's what you ought, you ought to do to excel still more, and that is to have two major Christian aspirations in your life and one of those is this, you've got to live your life in such a way that you're walking properly toward outsiders. And you have to walk in such a way that you're dependent on no one. Now how, now how easy is that to memorize? How easy is that to know? You say, well, it's easy to know. It's extremely hard to follow. It's extremely challenging to do it, to follow the commands, to, to do what he asks. And yes, I, I agree with you. Of course it is. But we still have to ask and answer the question, and we still have to seek to live this way. We seek to, to aim our lives this way. This is our ambition. And here's the first one. Portraying your worthy walk before unbelievers. Now, you and I aren't left with this aim, this aspiration. Paul actually gives us three practical wonderful pieces of advice on how to do that portrayal. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tell us in a purpose clause so that you may do something without giving us a little help. And he gives us a tremendous help. And here's the first one, aspire to live quietly. You see it in the first part of verse 11? Aspire to live quietly. That's how 
you can aspire to properly walk toward unbelievers. It's so practical. We're in, we're in a very, quote-unquote, practical section, but it's got a boatload of doctrine attached to it. You say, well, what is that doctrine? Let's call it the doctrine of ambition. The doctrine of ambition. What's your ambition? What are you living your life for? What gets you up in the morning? What, uh, what butters your bread? Well, if you're a Christian, what butters your bread, what gets you going, what's, what gets you excited, what, what provides your aim, your, your, the target you're shooting for, is to aspire to live quietly. Now, this is, this is so interesting because it seems like the word aspire, especially as I've presented it today, is a, is a real lofty something, a, a, an aim, an ambition, a seeking, a, a, a searching. And if you're like me, I think of those words in my mind and every one of those words that I just mentioned, aim, ambition, seeking, searching, aspiring, all of those, those, sounds like, those sound like major, major do words, right? I mean, they sound like dynamism and power and pursuit. It's like, uh, man, I got to get busy. I got to work hard. I, I, I've got to aim my life. It's going to take every part of me. It's going, to take, it's going to take the Holy Spirit's power through me and my own full and complete effort. And you, 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 you see that word and you think of aspire and aim. And then it's almost as though once that word is sort of juxtaposed to the next one, you and I go, huh? Because it says, aim to live quietly. Well, wait a minute. When I think of quiet, this could actually and is in other portions of our New Testament, this particular word, quiet or quietness or quietly, translated as rest. Rest. Other places, peace. Peace, peaceful. I'm thinking, man, Lance, you fired me up. I got to aspire. I got to get up in the morning. I got to get the juices flowing, not just the Dr. Pepper coffee for some of you. But I got to get going here. I got work to do. I got to live powerfully and dynamically the Christian life. In fact, I wrote something down here. Seems to me this sounds, this aspiration is something like this. Aspire to live courageously and fearlessly. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Or aspire to live dynamically and triumphantly. Paul says, yeah, well, there may be a place to that here and there in your aspirations. But he chooses this, aspire to live quietly. Boy, that just seems strange to me. It seems oxymoronic. I mean, how can you, if you're going to be quiet, use a different verb. Don't say aspire. Say meekly quiet. Right? I mean, what, 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 what is he referring to here? What's, what's, what's he after? Rest, silent, quiet. That's my aim? Yeah. Yeah. 
Because when you think of outsiders, when you think of the world, when you think of their pursuits, their aims, their ambitions, often it is something like this, stepping on the backs of others to get where they want to be. Aggressively. They want to, as I've said before, climb the ladder of success even if you're in front of them or on top of them and they will stop at nothing to go outside with their hands on the ladder of success and they're stepping on you all the way until they get on your shoulders and then they give you an extra kick so that you'll fall down the ladder so that they can be ahead of you, on top of you, greater than you, better than you, promotion, success, money, power, Will, possessions, prominence. So in a very counterintuitive way, the Apostle Paul says this, look, I want you to be characterized, Thessalonian believers, as those who are aiming at something, aspiring to do something, seeking something, searching with all your heart to do something, and that is to be quiet. to go about your tasks quietly, peacefully, to show the world the quietness is power. Quietness is power. Quietness is in itself dynamic. Even though it doesn't sound dynamic, be quiet. Well, that's, that's not dynamic. You've got to be bold. You gotta tell people how the cow ate the cabbage. You gotta, you gotta make sure everybody understands that, that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yes, he is. But it is also said of our Savior in Matthew 11, I'm humble in heart. He's the quiet and meek Savior. You say, well, there are other passages where Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Yes, when necessary, when necessary. But the quietness of your life, the aspiration of your soul is to do what you do in a quiet reverence, in a peaceable spirit so that you, in fact, can show the world and not just you as an individual, but as you live and work and are among believing people in the context of a local church, you're showing how to be quiet and peaceful together. Boy, that's a drawing power. The world is trying to make sure that everybody in their community understands how valuable the one person is. We're all about in the local Christian community of a local church determined to show the world how we are all getting along together with brotherly love, the brotherly love of verses 9 and 10. And now he says, hey, yes, aspire to this, aim for this, do this, but do it in such a way that you show the world that in quietness and meekness and peace and gentleness, and have I not, have I not just described some of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit of Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness or gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? So this is one of those passages where if your personality is you, you are a more quiet person, you say, praise the Lord. Yes, this is, this is me. This is my verse. You've memorized it. You honor it. And for, for others of us, like me, the loudmouth, you know, the, the talking head, you know, the bullhorn from the pulpit, I'm one of those that, you know, hey, let's fight for Christ. Let's be bold. But, you know, we need both. We need both. And in my boldness, I need to be meek and humble. And in your quietness, you need to live that quietness with strength. And dynamism. And that's what I think he's saying here. I thought about this and I thought, you know, this little aspire to live quietly, first part of verse 11, it's the anti-drama verse. It's just anti-drama. I mean, <laughs> there's some people who cannot seem to live or exist or aim or aspire to much except drama. Drama. They've got to have drama. Folks, this is an anti-drama verse. Be quiet. And and not only that, but look at the second part of verse 11. Here's Here's a second practical way, second practical help. And notice what he says. Aspire to mind your own affairs. Oh, this is so convicting. One other translation the Christian Standard Bible says this, mind your own business. That, that's, that's a phrase in our culture, isn't it? Hey, here's a piece of advice for you, fella. Why don't you mind your own business? Why, why don't you practice your own things? That's probably the literal rendering of the, the Greek word, idia, from idios, not idiot, idios. It means something like this, mind one's own. I like that, mind one's own. Practice your own stuff. Do what you need to do. If somebody's always trying to figure out what somebody else is supposed to do, they're probably spending too much time finding out what others are supposed to be doing and not enough time finding out what it is they're supposed to be doing, right? And you and I know who these people are. Perhaps you're one of them. Perhaps I am. Because for us, at times, or so it seems, we are thinking more about the affairs and the businesses and the one's own thing of others than we are about ourselves. You know what Paul's doing? He's giving us this sort of list of practicalities so that when outsiders who are characterized in these negative ways, how to be their opposites. So that they will perk up and say, there's something different about this crowd. I've started to sort of... uh, a rummage around in and through their lives, either corporately or individually. And, uh, you know, that neighbor down there, that guy that goes to such and such a church, he just seems different because he's anti-drama. 
I can't seem to get out of the drama of my life because everybody keeps reminding me of such drama, this unbeliever says. And it seems as though this guy, this gal, they try to aspire to live quietly and to mind their own affairs. And do you know that that can be a drawing card to the faith? Hey, they're, they're, they're different. Managing, we might say, your own life, your own things, your own duties, your own affairs. And we're going to get there in 2 Thessalonians 3. In fact, we'll read a little bit of it in a moment. Well, I'll actually read through the verses, but I'll tantalize you with them. I'll make a few little parenthetical comments about them in 2 Thessalonians 3. But when we get there, whenever we get there, Lord willing, I think 2 Thessalonians 3 and the bulk of that chapter is an exposition of what he's saying here in verses 11 and 12 of the first letter. But it says something in 2 Thessalonians 3 that I'll, that I'll sort of uh, tease you with right now, and it's the word busybody. It's in the text. It's in our biblical text. Mind your own affairs and don't be a busybody. We know what a busybody is, right? They're going around to try to figure out everybody else's affair. And this is, this is Paul. Aspire to mind your own things. And he's, of course, not just talking about one person in the Thessalonian church. He's talking to the Thessalonian church, right? This is being read to the church at Thessalonica. This is what everybody's supposed to do corporately and, of course, by implication, what every individual is to do as he is, as one person, a part of the whole. You see? So, aspire to mind your own affairs. Now, before I go on to the third one, let's go back to our key word there, aim, aspire. And do you know it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, probably ought to be a memory verse for you. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether we're at home, that is in heaven, or we're in the body, that means in this earthly tent, our aim, and that's the same word as our text here for aspire, just translated with a different English word, aim there, aspire here, and it's this, whether we're at home in heaven or whether in this body we're still alive, we're still in this physical flesh of ours, it says make your aim or let your aim be, depending on your English translation, be pleasing to the Lord, be pleasing to God. We are going to be pleasing to Him in heaven. Make it your aim while you're getting there to be pleasing to Him now. That's our aim. That's our aspiration. That's what we're called on to do. Now, the reason I bring up 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and I'll bring up another passage now, Galatians chapter 6, is somebody who's listening carefully might say something like this, but wait a minute, Lance. What about the boatload of passages in the New Testament that say help one another? Help them with their life. Counsel them. Love them. Take care of them in the body. Uh, if Paul's saying, mind your own affairs, it sounds like he's saying, be an individual and don't regard the whole. Let them 
deal with their own lives? What about all the one another's of the New Testament? What about loving one another and caring for one another and, 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 and seeking to, to do all of these one another's? It, it seems like you're telling me I've got to aspire uh, to uh, live quietly and to mind my own affairs. Uh, that makes me think that all my time would be taken up with that and that I'm not supposed to reach out and help anyone because I don't have all the time in the world. I've got to make sure that my life is commensurate with what it's saying here in the Bible. So what about reaching out and helping others? Seems like a contradiction or it seems like I don't have time to do both. Well, look over at Galatians chapter 6 just very quickly. Galatians chapter 6 because the answer of Galatians chapter 6 is that you've got to do both. You've got to do both. You and I are obviously realizing that we're not talking about disregarding everybody and not minding some of their life, some of their affairs, some of their needs. That's not what Paul is driving toward when he says you've got to be completely consumed with your own affairs. You say, well, how does the beautiful blending happen? Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Here's what it says. Bear one another's burdens. There's another one of the one another. Bear one another's burdens. Well, how does bear one, another, one another's burdens relate or be consistent with 1 Thessalonians 4? Well, it says, mind your own affairs. And I can hear the scenario, right? You're in the church. You see someone who's hurting, and they're assuming that you might come down the aisle to give them a hug and to pray with them and talk with them under the aegis of bear one another's burdens, and they walk right past you, and you say, wait a minute, and you sort of grab the shoulder, and I, you know, I'm hurting. Could, could you bear my burden with me? And they quote to you 1 Thessalonians 4.11. I'm sorry, I'm busy minding my own affairs. You'll have to ask somebody else. You see how easy we can find contradictions if we think they're there and we're using them? Well, it says here, bear one another's burdens. Yes, it does. But look at verse 5 of this very Galatians 6. For each one will have to bear his own load. What? Bear one another's burdens... Each one's going to have to bear his own load. Paul, are you mad? What what are you saying? Are are we supposed to bear one another's burdens, or are we supposed to bear our own load? What's the answer? Yes, the answer is yes, it's both. Strategically, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, and with prayer, and with the knowledge of the Word of God, there are times and seasons and opportunities where you must bear one another's burdens. And then there are times and seasons and opportunities in which you are not working hard enough on bearing your own load, and you should be doing so, and you shouldn't always be looking for somebody else to bear your load for you. Now, that's a delicate balance. And all of us, myself included, are going to do well with this at times and not very well with this at other times. And that's the push-pull of the Christian life. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't be discouraged. And don't think you've got it all wired at all times. 
and you are going to discipline others by, by showing them that they've been caught in a trespass, according to Galatians 6, and you're going to come alongside them as another Christian does to other Christians when they've fallen, been caught in a trespass, and it's going to be hard and taxing and difficult, and it seems like it's taking all of your time, and for a season it might. And then there are going to be times where that's not so emergent, it's not so taxing, and you and I are concentrating on our own life as we should. And there's a balance. And Galatians 6 talks about it. And it uses both things at once in the same passage. That's helpful. But don't accuse Paul of not knowing what he's talking about or he's confused if he only talks about the one thing as he does in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Because in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he's only talking about the one thing. Although, I could make a case. He's talking about the one thing in verse 11, but in verses 9 and 10, he's talking about the whole thing when he says brotherly love, right? Because brotherly love also includes coming alongside others while you are minding your own affairs to love them too. Do you see? So even the one thing that he's emphasizing at the one moment is usually not far from the balancing act of the other. And that's why you and I cannot be, as sometimes Christians do, reading one verse and assuming that we have the full import and understanding of the one verse, right? Read the verse before it. Read the verse after it. Find the context. Interpret it clearly and rightly and sensitively and with prayer and with solid hard work about what all of these individual passages mean. And do me a favor at times, take out all the verses and perhaps even all the chapter versification and just read the whole epistle as it stands, right? So we've got, we got a great first two practical ways. But there's a third. Look at the latter part of verse 11. Aspire to do your own work. Aspire to do your own work. What does that mean? Again, we're in the context of talking about walking properly toward outsiders. You're doing your own work. Now, now this is a little bit hard now. If you read any number of commentaries, as I have done, about what does this mean, do your own work, it's challenging. Some, some commentators would say, well, you see, in the context of the first century, there was a societal moray uh, called clients and patrons. The, the, the clients were the ones to be served because they had the financial wherewithal to, to bless you, to, to support you. Uh, and, and the patrons, like we would say, I'm a patron in that restaurant, well, they've got the food, so I go there to be fed, you see. They've got the wherewithal to feed me, and I need to be fed. It, it could mean this. It could mean something like, well, do your own work means don't expect somebody else to give you what you haven't worked for. could be something like that. Well, you read some other commentaries and you find out, no, 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 it's it could be this or maybe that's more in the background. It was true in that society, but is that what Paul means here specifically? They say, no, it's probably more like this. In the context of 1 Thessalonians, it's something like this. 
there were people in the church there in Thessalonica who weren't working because they thought that Jesus was coming back so imminently, so closely, so readily that they stopped working because Jesus is coming back. And the Thessalonians had some questions about it. And so Paul, in the very next verse here in verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11, is going to give some teaching on the second coming. And so what these commentators do is they theorize that because somebody believed in the church, or maybe most of them believed in that church in Thessalonica, that Jesus was coming back soon. It could be actually tomorrow. And so why do we need to work? Or some of them were choosing not to work, and they were actually relying on others in the fellowship to give them what they needed in order to survive because Jesus was coming back. I'm convinced of it. Some of them in Thessalonica were working, and some of them were not, and it was causing problems in the fellowship. It's actually a great theory. And there's about 15 more. No, it's not that, but it's this. No, it's not that, but it's this. Or it's a combination of that, but it's also this. And you ask me. Now, I'm your preacher, I'm your pastor, and I'm supposed to tell you exactly what it does mean, right? I have no idea. I, I really don't. I don't know what's behind it in the first century. I don't know. Some of those theories are very plausible. But let me go at it in a different way. When he says here, aspire to do your own work, when you get over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and following, that's perhaps its own divine commentary. Maybe not with exactly what was going on then, and perhaps that's for a reason, and that is we might not be in a client-patron society now, but we can still apply this passage very readily. And you know what it might be for us? It might not be that some of us in this church are not working because we think that Jesus is coming back tomorrow and you're expecting others in the fellowship to pay your bills or something like that. It's maybe something like this. 2 Thessalonians 3 is simply saying to us, which is teasing us in 1 Thessalonians right here, that there were people who were just idle in general. They were idle. In fact, we're going to be reading that. We're going to be reading it here. We're going to be reading it in chapter 5. Admonish the unruly. That's the word for idle. And we're going to read it in spades in 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6, all the way down nearly to the end of the letter. And it keeps using the word idleness, 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 or unruly, unruly, unruly. And perhaps it means something like this. It meant something for them, but I'll tell you what it does mean for us, at least in part, if not in the whole, and that is do your work. Don't be idle. Don't be a busybody. Don't try to make sure that everybody is figuring out how they can help you when you're not bearing your own load. Do your work. Do your work. And why do I think that's the case? Well, it slides right into our second aspiration. And I'll just introduce it and then we'll be done. You know that phrase here in verse 12? And be dependent on no one. That's a key. That's a key, isn't it? It has the idea of nobody is dependent on somebody else 
for the need as though that person isn't being responsible themselves. Notice the text. Be dependent on no one. If somebody does come alongside you, you're hurting, you need help, it's not because you've failed to be dependent yourself. It's because God has made it such that others should be ministering to you now, but it's not through your own fault. And that happens, doesn't it? You see, there was something going on here. And I think it's really two things. If you ask me, what does that do not be dependent on no one really mean? Well, I'm going to have to take you to 2 Thessalonians 3. So turn there, 1 Thessalonians 4 to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'm just going to tease you. It's, it's tantalizing. You're going to say, yeah, in your mind, but what does this mean? And what does he mean by that? We're going to get there, Lord willing. We're going to get there. I don't know when, 2022, 20, somewhere around in there. But we're going to get there. And notice what it says in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother. Now this is really serious. You keep away any brother who is walking in idleness. That's that word, idle. That's that, that's that word for undisciplined living. Undisciplined living. Or, in the NASB, chapter 5, same word, admonish the unruly. It's actually a military term. And it means something like this. That person is out of cadence, out of step. They're in the military, and the march is on, and you have to do exactly the way the military tells you to march. You're preparing to do everything right and well because you get into wartime, and one false move of undisciplined living on your part by getting out of cadence and somebody else and you or both are dead. So it says, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. That's exactly what Paul says, and as we instructed you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Now watch the divine commentary. Because we were not idle when we were with you. Now he gives some examples. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. See the insight there? Perhaps there were people in Thessalonica, professing Christians, brothers and sisters, who were asking for the bread of others that they did not earn themselves. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. See their motives? We didn't want you to think we were, and this is an older word in our, in our day, but some of you older folks like me, you know it, we will not be freeloaders. We're not going to be freeloaders. Paul says, we work night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. We didn't come into town and start preaching this message of the gospel and try to live the gospel toward outsiders and said, hey, how much are you going to give me? What's my honorarium? No. He says, it was not because we didn't have the right to, to receive financial compensation so that we can continue to live and preach the gospel? No, but to give in ourselves an example to imitate. You see that? Verse 10, 
for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. It's, it's, a, it's a serious command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. Now we might know a little bit more of what he means when he says, aspire to do your own work. That's what we did. We did our own work. And we ate from our own work. Why? Because we wanted to be an example that you would imitate. And then he says, and this might be the only real significant problem in the church in Thessalonica, according to the Apostle Paul, because this is the only place in the two letters in which he appears to say there's a problem, and it is this, verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Notice that word walk. That step-by-step walk, right? I I told you in, in verse 11, verse 12, so that you walk properly toward outsiders. Here's another kind of walking, and it's inside the fellowship, and it's with professing believers, and they're walking not by doing their own work and eating thereof. They're walking in idleness, unruliness, not busy at work, he says, but busy bodies. This is the uh, drama queen, the, the drama king right here. They're trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, and they're not doing their own work. But they're certainly expecting to eat the bread of others who are doing the work. And notice the strong, strong thing Paul says in verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly. Notice quiet. And to earn their own living, or that alternate translation in the ESV, to eat their own bread. It's important teaching, isn't it? And, and all of that is a summary to what I believe you could call undisciplined living. Undisciplined living. So now we're talking about brother to brother, sister to sister. This is the context of the church now. Now, we're still talking about how we're properly to walk as the outsiders, the unbelievers see us, but here we're talking about how we interact and live among believers so that when the outsiders are hearing and seeing how we live together as believers, when we walk outside those doors, when we're in our own context and we're not with the corporate gathering, we have an opportunity to say, here's what life is like in the church. We do our own work. We don't uh, freeload off others. We want to be imitating followers of the apostles and of our Lord Jesus. And it even gets worse. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That means doing your own work, doing the things you should. If anyone, verse 14, does not obey what we say in this letter and particularly what is in this context right here about doing your own work, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. This is severe. This is talking about shunning, shunning people in the fellowship away from the fellowship or saying, sit over there or you can't be with us because you keep freeloading, because you're undisciplined in your living, because you're not eating your own bread, and now you have to pay the consequences, and we as a group are going to shun you. And then it says that, that purpose again, that he may be ashamed. 
Now, we don't like to talk about this kind of discipline for the undisciplined, do we? Because it sounds punitive, it sounds hurtful, it sounds egregious. But you know what? Sometimes the remedy is best served by shunning so that they might be ashamed of their actions. Now, I know it's that same idea of, well, what about love? What about grace? What about mercy? I thought that's what your church was supposed to be called, a place of grace, a place of mercy. Aren't we as wild, wicked sinners supposed to be able to come into the fellowship and receive love and grace and mercy? Well, of course. But nobody expects those who come into the fellowship as outsiders who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to stay in such wickedness. You've got to change. And by God's grace, you will. And for those of you who lapse back into certain things, and Paul gives an example here of not being willing to work and not eating your own bread and being a busybody instead, he says, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But then notice the grace. It's, it's, it's never lurking far away. Look at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, there's no shunning that we see as inviting. It's a must, but we don't with glee shun people. We don't do that. We don't regard them as an enemy. We regard them as a brother or as a sister. Sister, we love you. You can't do what you're doing. You're a, you're a busybody. And the Lord is not looking kindly upon what you're doing. You must change. And so if you continue, we're going to have to stand off from you where you're not going to do the busybodying around us anymore. And you know what happens to true believers in the fellowship when something like that happens? They've, they've gotten off the rails. They, they've taken a step out of cadence. What do we do? We shun them for their undisciplined living. And yet we don't say, look, you filthy, vile, wretched, unbelieving sinner. We say something like this, Oh, brother, oh, sister, we love you so much. This is why we're doing what we do. Is that not what you do with your children when you discipline them? Of course you do. I love you so much, I'm going to have to give you the rod of reproof. To, to, to say I love you, with no loving actions attendant therein, you say, well, there is a loving action. Look, I got sin in my own life. Uh, the first one who doesn't have any sin casts the first stone. Uh, one day I'm going to be in the same position, so I better not do that with this person now because one day it's going to come against me, so I'm going to live so quietly that I never confront anybody and I never lovingly come alongside anybody who's working to, whether they intend to or not, destroy the fellowship. I'm just going to be all by myself. Well, there's... There's no blessing in that. 
There's no premium on you just saying, I'm going to just be by myself. If you're by yourself and if you're not engaged, even when it means you have to shun others so that they would be ashamed as a restorative act, we want to restore you to the fellowship in such a way that you're going to say, thank you for loving me enough that you admonished me, you warned me that my actions were going to be injurious not only to myself but to the whole body. Thank you for loving me that much. It's hard. It's hard to do that. Nobody relishes that. Nobody wants to do that. But you do it because it's right to do because the Scripture says right here you must do it. And no wonder he Finishes in verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Because we want to have peace in the fellowship, right? That's, that's the whole point. See, it's never far away. The, the, the balance, the beautiful balance is never far away. Here's regard him as a brother so that you can have peace at all times in every way. As we close, let me ask you. Two aspirations. Do you aspire to live in these ways? Boy, I'm so convicted, I think I have to bow my head now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so convicted, I'm so challenged, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is telling us in no uncertain terms that if you don't aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to do your own work, especially as it relates to outsiders, unbelievers who are looking at us, seeing our lives both individually and corporately, then we're, in a sense, clouding a picture of the true gospel. And if even in the fellowship I aspire to be dependent on no one, to to not think that everybody has to kowtow to me to, to give me what I'm not willing to work for on my own? Well, it's a farce. It's, it's not the way the body of Christ works. We all individually minister our responsibilities, our, our gifts, our talents, our time, our effort, And as I go to meet someone, somebody else is meeting me on the way. Yes, to meet my needs, to take care of me as I'm laboring to take care of someone else. I'm doing my work, and the beautiful balance is I also want to help bear the burdens of others. And others, while they're doing their own load, they're coming to help me to bear my burdens. Father, this is so practical and so convicting. May our church be known, both individually and corporately, as a place that has serious joy so that you are pleased because that is our aspiration to properly walk toward outsiders and to be dependent on no one. May it be so for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Chris Brunzio comes to pray for us. Hey, brother.